0: Well, I have a confession uh, to make. I have an aversion to doctors, dentists, needles, and tubes. Anybody else have that testimony? Everybody, I think. You sit back in that dentist chair, and the assistant comes in with a needle and says, this won't hurt. She's lying, right? In fact, they're all a pack of liars, in my view. I remember going in for some x-rays about 15 years ago, and they... And they had me drink something, and then they could track it through my system. And the doctor said, here, drink this. This tastes like a milkshake. (laughs) Tasted like sludge with with a hint of vanilla, I will admit that. You know, I'm convinced that you cannot get a medical degree without being able to lie with a straight face. I, I think that's part of their training. This will only take a moment. This will only pinch for a moment. Oh, not true. You know, I finally got so tired of taking uh, pain relievers, you know, ibuprofen or whatever I could find because of a broken tooth for months. And uh, I finally got so tired of it that I decided I'd go to the dentist. And I went to the dentist and he took x-rays of all of my teeth because it had been years since I'd ever been in that that chair. And he came in after the x-rays and he told me, he said, look, you do not have one broken tooth. You have three broken teeth, and you're going to need three crowns. There goes my retirement. (laughs) I think crown is an appropriate word because only kings and queens can afford them. Amen? So I avoid the medical profession at all costs. I know we have doctors and dentists in here. I love you, but I avoid you professionally speaking at all costs. Nearly 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson was writing a letter to a woman named Maria Cosway. And in it, he delivered this little statement that's become a rather famous quote. Part of it says this, the art of life is the avoiding of pain. The art of life is avoiding pain. I would have to disagree with him on biblical grounds. Frankly, the art of life is not avoiding pain. The art of life is accepting and responding to pain. That's the art of the Christian life, isn't it? In getting to the point where we recognize, embrace, and we struggle, we go backwards and then forwards, that pain manufactures maturity, it does crisis uh, conditions character, and it does difficulty develops depth. The truth is, a difficulty and, and the crises of life and pain and suffering create these crossroads. And the path we choose to take will make all of the difference in the world as to whether or not we will, we will grow and deepen and sweeten or whether or not we will stagnate and weaken in our faith. Now, if you've ever wondered where a crossroad is, experience is described in scripture where there is a decision to be made that will determine literally the destiny of of a person's life. Ruth chapter 1 is that place. It's a a crisis at the crossroad of life for three women. And what a crisis it is. Now, when we last left this family in Ruth chapter 1, they had become familiar sights At uh, the local uh, funeral home, they all knew Naomi by name. First, Naomi's husband had died, and then one of her sons, and uh, then we don't know how much later her last living grown son passed away. Uh, No details, no description all of a sudden in just a matter of a few brief verses we have three widows grieving their incredible loss and in this world at this time in this culture this was beyond grief in fact it not only it not only threatened their their future happiness on earth but it really literally threatened their ability to survive naomi and her husband, you remember, and her two sons had left Bethlehem, believing they are leaving trouble behind. It's all green pastures from here on out. But now, 10 years later, we find them again. There's nothing in Moab for Naomi except three graves, great sorrow, unbelievable grief, and a gnawing sense. Of fear. Now, she can stay here and mourn and potentially starve to death or leave and go back. Besides, word has reached her that Bethlehem has food again. Bethlehem, the house of bread, has bread once again. And so without any apparent hesitation, let's pick it up at verse 6 where we left off and find out what happens. Then... She arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Now, in typical Oriental fashion, it was typical in this day for hosts to accompany their departing guests some distance down the road, then bid them farewell. It's, it's uh, possible that Naomi had moved in with one. Uh, perhaps there was a family compound. She was living with uh, her daughter's in-law, and they are now accompanying her. Uh, more than likely, in her mind, they will part ways. That seems to be the picture here. These three widows eventually end up at either the border uh, separating uh, Moab and another region. It was separated by the Dead Sea, or perhaps it was the edge of the Jordan River just north, uh, just above the Dead Sea. We're not, we're not told. In Bethlehem, we do know, was about a 3 days journey from uh, Moab, and, and Naomi would not have wanted them to walk very far until she said farewell, which is exactly what I believe she had in mind to do. Now notice, notice verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. Now, you might think it's strange for uh, Naomi to encourage these women to return, not to their father's house. You notice, she says, go back to your mother's house. Now, this doesn't mean that Orpah and Ruth... Uh, have deceased fathers. This expression is actually referring to the mother's place. You could literally render it the mother's chamber. It was the mother's chamber in this culture where marriages were arranged and planned. In other words, she's saying, girls, look, you're, you're young, you have your life in front of you, go back to your mother's and make plans for another wedding. Let her arrange it for you. Go back to whatever you can make out of your future. Naomi continues. Look on further in in verse 8. May the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Get, get Get a picture in your mind of this. Whether you've read the book of Ruth a hundred times or this is your first time, here they are out in the open without security But without much hope at all, in their minds they have very little future ahead, and here they are weeping. These women have their lives turned upside down with unfulfilled expectations and absolutely unexpected grief and sorrow. Frankly, I, I think there are a few more tender and heartbreaking scenes in the Bible than this one. This isn't one damsel in distress, but but three. And here they are now at a crossroad, literally and figuratively, in the midst of their pain. We happen to be given a textbook lesson on three classic responses to pain and disillusionment and sorrow. Perhaps you'll identify with one of these widows. Maybe we can identify a little bit with all three. Let's first take a closer look at Naomi, You remember perhaps that her name means gracious one. You ought to write that somewhere in the margin. Uh, You could render it pleasant. You you might even translate it sweet. The trouble is she's become embittered over these ten long years. And I think the lines in her face would tell the story of three graves and great, great loss. So, She concludes, as we've seen already with what we've read in this session, that she is best left alone. It's best that you leave me alone. And I want to make two observations from her own words. First, Naomi considers herself unworthy of love. If you look at uh, the, the conversation she has with these girls, four times she will tell them to go back and leave her alone. Four times. Notice her first reason she expects them to leave her. Look at verse 10. They, they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi, verse 11, said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? In other words, since my sons are now gone, you're no longer bound with marriage to me. There isn't anything in myself Worthy of you caring about or following. I'm just an old woman now. I'm sure you don't want to bother with me, so I'm going to let you go. We're not going to have any awkward moment. You're not going to have to tell me you think it's best. I'm just going to let you go because surely there's no reason you would want to love me. See, you peel back the layers of self-pity and she's convinced herself that God no longer loves her, and neither should Orpah and Ruth. Notice what she says in verse 12. Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. In other words, God is against me. He evidently doesn't love me either. Ladies and gentlemen, if you ever reach the point where you're convinced that God doesn't love you, you're going to to find it impossible to be loved by anybody else. And you're, you're going to find it difficult, if not impossible, to give love back. True, self-sacrificing, genuine love is impossible apart from the love of Christ. Receiving it from Him, whether we feel worthy of it or not, and then through us, we serve as conduits of His love to, to others. David wrote it this way, Unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in what? You labor in vain to build it on your own, Psalm 127.1. True love is always a three-party transaction. In fact, the commitment that Ruth will show Naomi later, we'll see, will only be possible because Ruth has become committed to Naomi's true and living God. Naomi considers herself unworthy of love. Second observation is this, which is much more serious Naomi considers God unworthy of worship. Look at verse 14. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. In other words, go back to your gods. They'll probably be no worse to you than mine was to me. In verse 13, she says that God's hand is against her. In verse 20, she says that God has dealt bitterly with her. In verse 21, she says that God, again, is against her and has afflicted her. Now, what in the world is Naomi doing demanding that two daughters-in-law go back to their pagan gods? Their chief god was Chemosh, and and the worship was child sacrifice. Why would a Jewish woman, a daughter of Abraham, encourage two pagan women to go back and worship their false gods and the horror of their worship? One author, Warren Wiersbe, asked the same question and he suggested a reason in his commentary that I thought was intriguing. He said that Naomi wanted to go back to Bethlehem and she really didn't want anybody to know that she and her husband had permitted their two sons to marry pagan Gentiles. In other words, I'd rather you not go back with me because I'd like to cover up our unfaithfulness to God. But two wrongs do not make a What? All oh, right, she would only be adding to her guilt in my opinion i don 't think she 's covering up unfaithfulness I think she 's simply counseling these two women based on unbelief God really isn 't worth following i 've been to the graveyard now, not once, not twice, but three times, and it is now clearly obvious to me that God does not care in fact, if you fast forward this story where she arrives back in Bethlehem. Look at verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem and when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? In in other words, all of Naomi's former friends, acquaintances, maybe distant relatives, come up to her and, and say, Naomi, is that you? Is that you? She said in verse 20, Don't call me Naomi, don't call me sweet or pleasant, call me Mara, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. In other words, I used to be pleasant and sweet, but now I'm bitter, and I want you to know God made me this way. So days earlier, it's, why don't you go back to your gods? You've seen how my God treats me. Maybe your God will be better to you. This is a serious situation at this crossroad in in her life. Nowhere do you read of repentance for having abandoned God's covenant people and God's covenant land. In fact, at this point, she's more interested in food than fellowship with God. She is returning to the land, but she is not returning to the Lord. Look again at verse 21 where she says, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now she's right in a way, isn't she? God has brought her back in his providence. She's kicking and screaming all the way. But God hasn't deserted her even though she's basically deserting him. And that's the way he is with his people. She has no idea that God is at work in her life now more than ever. She has no idea that God has plans for a new son-in-law and a grandson named Obed. And and she has no idea that he will be the great-grandfather of King David. But we're all basically the same way. We struggle with this as well. When in pain, we tend to magnify what we do not have and minimize what we do have and assume it will never change. But I want you to hear a little ray of hope, uh, just a little sliver of insight buried in her words. She says in verse 21, We went out full but came back empty. Now wait a second. They left in the middle of a famine. Remember? They had little to eat. They had seen the loss of their property value, no doubt, a plunge. Enemy Midianites are around every corner. That's why they left that and headed for the green fertile plains of Moab. But now she's saying, I was really full in the middle of a famine. Now I'm empty. We were in reality where we needed to be and we had everything that really mattered in Bethlehem. Now, let's quickly go back and take a a look at Orpah, the second widow in this crossroad of pain and suffering. Now, when Naomi first demanded that the girls return to their mothers, you notice in verse 10 that both Ruth and Orpah lifted up their voices and They began to to weep. They basically said, we're going to return with you to your people. That's what Orpah said as well as Ruth. We're going to return with you to your people. But then Naomi lays out for her and Ruth the reality of what they're going to lose if they do. Orpah gets the message. And let me summarize what Naomi's certainly hinting at. Some of it's more obvious than other things, but she's simply giving this message to these two young women. And Orpah gets it, clearly. Her life will be difficult as a widow from Moab. Her prospects of a husband will be less than nothing. She will be unwanted by the Jewish community. Moabites and Jews don't get along. In fact, they really don't like each other. In fact, they hated each other. She will leave her nation with all of its comfortable customs and cultures and conditions that she's used to. She will be forfeiting her rights as a citizen. She is given no prospects and no promises. And Orpah lifts her voice and weeps, the text says, and she kisses her mother-in-law and basically says farewell. Verse 14. She got the message. And she's going to cry? And she's going to kiss her mother-in-law and then say, well, in light of that, maybe we'll write. Or maybe I'll call. J. Vernon McGee wrote in his little commentary that Ruth and Orpah demonstrate two kinds of members in the average church. The professors and the possessors. Orpah made a profession of faith, but Ruth possessed genuine faith at this crossroad of life a decision is made by Orpah which will determine her eternal destiny you're watching it happen like many I've witnessed too who believe Christ after you give them the whole story you know he's really gonna 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 interrupt their lives more than they want You know, God's going to mess up my social standing and my reputation and my social connections more than I think I want him to. I may have to give up an idol or two. And so no thanks. Orpah calculated the cost. She decides to go back to darkness. She was sad about it. She shed tears. They were real tears. But at this crossroad of life, she chooses to go back to paganism She chooses to go back to the darkness. She chooses to go back to the gods of her forefathers. She chooses to go back to, perhaps this time, a good man of Moabite stock. And she disappears over the horizon, and the Bible never mentions her again. Wow. Naomi says, well, Ruth, what are you waiting for? Look, behold, verse 15 says, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after her. Go on. Get, as they'd say in North Carolina. (laughs) What happens next, however, is nothing less than one of the most profound confessions of faith you will find anywhere in Scripture. Let's just read it. Let me read you follow along. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will become my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Isn't that amazing? To sum it all up, Ruth is... Saying to Naomi, no matter what the future holds, no matter where the future takes us, I'm in. And I'm going to stay by your side. This is no blind decision. I believe this is a rehearsed speech. She's thought it through. Ruth knows that Naomi has nothing to offer her except poverty and hardship. She has absolutely nothing to gain by going with Naomi, and she has everything to lose. Naomi tries to tell her, Go back to your mother, which is an interesting thought. Ruth's mother, a Moabitess, is evidently alive. Can you imagine, as I tried to do that conversation? Ruth, are you out of your mind? What are you thinking? I knew there would be trouble when you married that Israelite. Now, listen, stay here in Moab, stick to your family, worship your gods, and marry a nice Moabite man. Get over them. Here's your chance out. Here's your way back. You know, we've read this story so often, perhaps, that we've forgotten what Ruth is giving up. After losing her husband, she is turning her back on her citizenship, her country, her culture, her religion, her security, and her family. She is literally giving away her future. One author put it this way, Ruth possesses nothing. No deity has promised her blessing. Consider this. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and she chooses without a support system. And she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection and perhaps even death. She has committed herself to the life of an an older widow rather than the search for a new husband. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. Twice in her well-rehearsed and thought-out speech to Naomi, she refers to God with personal terminology. The God of Israel is the one whom she is now believing in, relating to, and trusting. For her future. While in Toulon, France, a number of years ago, uh, Marcia and I were staying with a a French pastor, Jean Pierre, and his wife Jocelyn. Delightful couple. Uh, Jean Pierre couldn't speak English, just a few words. He he knew about as much English as I knew French, and he could say hello, and I could say we, and that was about it. (laughs) So after we said hello and we uh, several times, she would interject and translate for him. And one evening after dinner, we were talking and John Pierre was telling us about a young lady who'd come to faith in Christ in their church. And it was a wonderful story, but it was a story of great suffering for this young woman. She faced a great deal of persecution because of her decision. She'd lost her friends and was nearly disowned by her family. Then Jean Pierre said something that Jocelyn was having a hard time finding an English counterpart to translate it correctly. And finally she sort of gave up and, and then she spoke broken English too. And she said, my husband is saying that in spite of everything, this young lady gripped God. What a great thought. She gripped by faith. Lord ladies and gentlemen we have three widows with three different ways of handling the pain of life which they could not avoid Orpah departs Naomi returns Ruth arrives Orpah's shallow faith was based on circumstances and Naomi's weak faith was biased by circumstances. Ruth's newfound faith went beyond circumstances, it was independent of circumstances entirely. And so here they arrive in this strange new land. But one thing is certain Ruth has a tight grip on her newfound, true, and living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this particular passage of Scripture which has allowed us to climb into the sandals of these three widows facing insurmountable odds, still grieving deeply their loss, no doubt wondering about their future. And it all looked like nothing more than trouble. Everywhere they looked. One abandoned you. Considering the cost was too high. One became embittered against you, Father. And one believed in you. Friends, place yourself in this scene. What would the temptation be in your own heart right now? Where would it lie? To walk away from the, the cost of following Christ? The price is too high. It's too complex. It, it disturbs my life. I would have you examine yourself to see if you have genuine faith. Make sure you belong to him. Maybe it's the other widow that resonates with your heart where she became embittered. We all stand on the threshold of that, don't we, from time to time? Maybe you're there right now. God doesn't seem to be paying up. Christianity doesn't seem to be paying off. You can't take a pill and and get away from it. You can't have a shot to eliminate the, the pain. There's nothing you can do. Maybe you're at the crossroads. Perhaps you're like Ruth, which is where we all want to be, where we effectively say to you, Lord, wherever you go, I want to go. Wherever your name lodges, wherever your will reveals itself, that's where I want to be, no matter what. No promises of a way out over the next months or years, but you've given promises of a way through it with sufficient grace. So, Lord, for all those in that category, as well as the others, I pray, for every heart, that the enemy would be defeated as we stand at the crossroads of life, decisions are made, perhaps destiny is determined, oh, that we would all make the right decision. It simply says, even without answers, Lord, we choose to rehearse back to you our commitment to follow you. Simple as that. It's as simple as that, Father. May that be our testimony. As we prepare to take another step forward tomorrow, whatever it is, wherever it takes us, we will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.